Hey guys, welcome to Spirit Pig. This is the show that explores how to live a fulfilled life. I'm Duncan CJ and today I'm speaking with Dr. Michael Shermer. Michael has an MA in experimental psychology and a PhD in the history of science. He's the founder and publisher of Skeptic Magazine. He's an author of multiple titles, including The Moral Arc, How Science and Reason Lead Humanity Towards Truth, Justice and Freedom, as well as The Believing Brain and The Science of Good and Evil. He's appeared on shows such as The Colbert Report, Larry King Live, and his two TED Talks have been viewed by millions of people all around the globe. Michael, thank you so much for being here. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Now, I I was going through your sort of talks and being on your website and being on Skeptic Report, and I mean, one thing which I've been kind of like wondering for a while, and I know that you mentioned it, is that we are living in the most moral and peaceful time in human history. And uh, however, if we turn on the news, it's very easy to believe that mm-hmm. Armageddon is literally just around the corner. Like, why, <laughs> yep. why do you feel yep. this is? Uh, well, first of all, um, our senses are geared toward uh, immediate and emotionally salient events. So shark attacks, terrorist attacks, uh, you know, the, the economy yesterday, uh, in other words, homicides, wars, things that make the nightly news. We follow the headlines instead of the long-term trend lines. And uh, it's the media's job to report on those things, of course, um, and they should, and we should pay some attention to the daily news. But uh, if you want to ask, are things getting better or are things getting worse? You, you can't look at the media. You can't follow the daily news. You have to really look at the long-term trends over the course of years, decades, or centuries, uh, which is what I try to do in the moral arc and um, show that, of course, there's little ups and downs. It's like the global warming curves. You know, it's up, down, up, down, up, down. But the overall sawtooth blade is going up. It's getting warmer. So even though there might be a few cooler years, the overall trend is warmer. So same thing. Even though some years, like Chicago, we had the most homicides uh, that we've had in in a couple of decades, uh, that's a you know short-term downturn in one area. The long-term trend is a decline in homicides in almost all cities in most parts of the world, even though um, you play, have places like Syria where you have a civil war. The number of civil wars has declined in the last half century. Um, and that, So that's kind of what I mean about looking at the long-term trends, uh, taking you know the, the big-picture look, and not saying things are perfect or, you know, there's no problems or we're nearing perfection. I'm not. <laughs> so in other words, there, it's not utopia, but it's not dystopia either. OK, so, I mean, it's and also with, I guess, the, the rise of the Internet, you've got Twitter, you've got the 24 hour news cycle. We are so focused on the immediate. It's often hard to actually have a bit of perspective and say, actually, you know, things are actually they're OK. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So and, and a deeper reason for this is is evolution and the second law of thermodynamics. That is, uh, there's a famous paper called the, the second law of thermodynamics is the first law of, of human psychology, uh, by which the authors meant that um, the natural state of things is for things to run down entropy for things to disintegrate, not not to naturally build up. Uh, and so our psychology is geared toward preventing that. Uh, that is trying to find food to eat rather than our bodies just disintegrating and withering away, trying to find a warm place to sleep like a cave or a, you know, a tree or something rather than freezing to death. Because the natural state with entropy is for your body to get colder. So you have to ingest calories for it to stay you know, uh, stable. 
uh, the stable temperature. So most of our psychology is geared toward preventing bad things from happening, preventing entropy. So we're naturally more focused on negative things than positive things. There are many more ways for things to go bad than, than there are for things to go good. And for things to go good, you have to like put in concerted effort. For things to go bad, you don't have to do anything. You can just, just go outside and stand, and things will get worse naturally. You'll get colder or whatever. You'll get hotter or something. So um, we, we, it, it's good that we're focused on that from an evolutionary perspective. It's, it's, this is what helps us survive is to pay more attention to negative things than positive things. And the literature in psychology is pretty clear about this, that we have more – for example, we have more words that describe negative emotions than positive emotions. Um, if you give people you know, choices between things, they're more likely to notice the negative things than the positive things and focus on those. And uh, you know, there, there are more things that hurt than feel good. You know, we have erogenous zones, but, but, but there's far more ways for your body to feel pain than to feel pleasure and, and those sorts of things. So. Um, I, I fully understand the psychology of pessimism, negativism, apocalyptic thinking. Doomsday planning. This is why there, you know, there are almost no movies about utopian societies where everything is great. It would be a boring movie. What makes a movie or a novel interesting is when you know, things look like they're great, but then they go bad. And so the hero has to come in and save the day and turn things around and get us back on track. But if something bad didn't happen – it would be a boring story. You know, so our, our, our senses, our brains are geared toward really focusing on negative things. Okay. And I guess what, well, yeah, once we realize that, then it takes a little bit of the sting and the, um, the power out of it. It's an evolutionary thing. And so we can maybe not get so pessimistic about it. Maybe, I don't know. I mean, if you think about it, you know, a, a politician or a religious leader, they can devote their entire lives to doing good work, for humanity, and the whole thing can be wiped out with a single affair, or <laughs> embezzlement, or some you know thing. Some little one bad thing can wipe out you know a career of good things, and that's again our, our focus, our obsession with celebrities you know falling. You know we we it's one thing to track a celebrity's climb toward fame and, and fortune. Uh, but what we really like is to watch them fall. Like, oh yeah, you know, this, you know, there's a little bit of Schadenfreude there, where you know we want to see the mighty taken down, and there's something about that that you know we're uh, that this pessimism bias we have, it's unfortunate in the sense because it blinds us to the things we have been doing right that we should do more of because we're too focused on the things we've been doing wrong. You know, again, don't ignore the things we've been doing wrong because we've got to fix them. But let's not forget, you know, the things that are good. Mm. So what keeps you up at night when you look at the world today, then? If, if, we're not, if, we, if you're not so concerned by all this, the, the immediate news that maybe some of us are concerned with, what, are, what, are you, what does concern you when you look at it almost from a, I don't know, a, third, a bird's eye view point of view? Well, I'm worried about my weight. It's New Year's, so I'm going to lose some weight here. <laughs> you know, the usual personal stuff, of course. You know, I'd like to make more money. I hope my books sell well. I hope my family stays healthy. I hope they don't get cancer or Alzheimer's. And, you know, those sorts of things. But I guess collectively or politically or whatever, um, uh, I'm not as concerned about Trump as, as a lot of Americans are. I, I, I don't think any one person has the kind of power 
that, say, a Napoleon or, or even a Hitler half a century ago, three quarters of a century ago had. Uh, uh, I don't think any one person could do that much harm. So I'm not too worried about that. Uh, I, I am concerned about things like Putin and uh, you know his efforts to kind of cobble together a, a, a USSR type uh, uh, nation again. Um, Syria, of course, is a mess, and you know there there is still racial tensions. You know, America is very black and white, and uh, you know now I'm worried about the backlash against cops. Actually, uh, you know, there's more cop killings now than there's been in decades because of this backlash and the perceived threat that, you know, cops kill black people just for the fun of it, which is not true. And, uh, you know, so that those are the sorts of things that worry me a little bit. Long term, I guess, maybe global warming, although I'm not a global warming doomsdayer. I think global warming is real and it's human cause, but I think there's, I think we could do something about it. I'm a big fan of technological scientific solutions. You know, just show people a way to make money on global warming and this problem will be solved. <laughs> I mean, I, I call it the Elon Musk model, you know, like, all right, let's just make electric cars and solar panels on every house. I mean, I live in California. When you fly like from L.A. across uh, east, across the desert, it's like just endless sunshine and endless homes with no solar panels. I mean, every single building in America should have solar panels. Germany has more solar panels than America, and they're in, you know, in the clouds more, uh, most of the time. So come on, people. You know, we, can, we can do this technologically, but the, 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 the economics has to be there. Mm. And you're a big advocate and believer in sort of science and reason. Do you, do you believe that science and reason is sort of the, can be like a solution to all issues, or are there some things where it's just not appropriate? Uh, well, I, I, I'm pretty much, uh, you know, uh, super pro, just do it for everything. Uh, you know, I mean, like if you get married, you should make a list, you know, pros and cons. This is what Charles Darwin did, you know, for and against. And he had a long list and it came out, well, all right, I guess I'll get married. Now, I know that sounds kind of cold, but in a way we do that anyway, uh, subjectively in our minds. We weigh you know, how much we like this person or how we feel about them. But really, those emotions are proxies for something else. It's a deeper calculation. Um, and so evolutionary psychologists, for example, and this is not a fun way to think about romantic love, but they show <laughs> us that, that the, the kinds of features we find attractive in other people, uh, symmetrical faces, clear complexion, uh, you know, hour shaped glass in women, uh, you know, more of a pyramid shaped uh, figure in men, broad shoulders, you know, narrow waist and so on. Those actually are proxies for physical health, genetic health, that probably that would be a good person that you find attractive to have you share your genes with into the next generation, which is what evolution does. So, so in a way we're, we're already doing those kinds of calculations that sound cold and unromantic. So the whole like internet dating service thing, all it's doing is quantifying what we already do anyway. Um, and so it doesn't sound romantic, but you know, in a way our, our emotions evolved to drive us to do things that are probably good for passing on your genes into the next generation for evolution, that kind of thing. So do you, is that if, okay, so if our objective is, you know, the continuation of the species, passing on the genes, then I, I can understand that, you know, empirical sort of like scientific, but then I don't know, like, I don't know, on the one hand, I'm just like, yeah, science, science, science. On the other hand, I'm just like, matters of the heart and, you know, those, those kind of things. I don't know, is it, can, it, can, it, can it go too far? Is it, is, it, is it on a pendulum or is it, can it go too far when, you know, we are making decisions just empirically where they need, I don't know, like... Well, you can certainly, okay, so the experience of a sunset or love or whatever is different from our 
talking about, well, what is it? You know, uh, well, love, there's an increase in oxytocin and dopamine. When you think about your beloved in in a brain scanner, I can see where it's happening right there in the dopaminergic neurons or whatever. But of course, that's a separate thing from you actually feeling that wonderful feeling of, or whatever appreciation of art, music, um, and and so forth. So it doesn't take anything away from the qualitative experience, what neuroscientists call qualia, Mm. the qualitative experience of something, science doesn't take anything away from that, has really nothing to do with it, uh, and and only adds to it, because you can stand there at a sunset, I mean, and and go, well, okay, so the red does this, and, or, you know, you're making love with your partner, and it's like, wow, so I just got a boost of oxytocin, who, well, I don't recommend doing that, (laughs) and and don't narrate it, Uh, but... (laughs) But we can at least we can understand it, you know. And so, like the work of Helen Fisher, for example, the anthropologist who does this, um, you know, she shows why love is so addicting because it has the same effects in the brain like that cocaine and chocolate do. Um, that you know, it, it 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 triggers the same neurons to fire and release dopamine and oxytocin and all these little love hormones. And and this is why people go so crazy about you know obsessed with their loved one they can't stop thinking about them and or in the case of some men they get violent about it you know jealousy is jealousy is kind of a is a negative emotion but but it's an emotion that evolved to drive us to make guard to protect our genetic interests essentially again that doesn't sound very romantic but you know we got to understand why people do what they do so so you can have both Really, you, you don't. You don't have to. You could have all the science you want and still go out and have some fun. <laughs> Belief and believing in things is our natural state. We we want to believe in things, don't we? Uh, well, yeah. It's it's so the default um, action of the brain is to the moment you comprehend an idea, you just believe it. It must be true, or else why would you be comprehending it? So skepticism is an an additional cognitive load, another step you have to take to say now that I comprehend it. I wonder if it's true. You know, I got the claim. The person makes the claim, but is the claim true? That takes another step. Uh, and this is why skepticism does not come naturally. Uh, it, it, it feels uncomfortable. It feels like a load of work, like, oh, it would just be so much easier to believe this uh, rather than having to comprehend it and then go a step further and play the devil's advocate to your own brain and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, Shermer, maybe <laughs> – I'd really like it to be this way, but maybe it isn't actually that way. And, uh, you know, it's like um, uh, I was having a discussion with Dan Dennett yesterday about uh, Snowden. You know, uh, at first I didn't like what Snowden did with the, you know, the WikiLeaks thing. And then and then I saw him at TED, you know, he. Yeah. A remote location in Moscow. OK. And but he came across totally, completely honest and full of integrity and, you know, freedom lover, and I'm a big freedom lover guy, big libertarian. I was like, yes, yes, government overreach, the NSA, no good. I love this guy. I love this guy. You know, uh, but th- this is just reinforcing what I want to be true. Like, yes, yes, everything he yeah. – and then I'm reading this article the other day in the Wall Street Journal about, you know, maybe he wasn't the good guy. All this, I'm like, oh, no. And, and see that – and I don't like reading that. I kind of have to force myself because I'd rather just – have things be true the way I want them to be true. So even for me, Mr. Skeptic, uh, it's an effort. I'd rather just lay back and go, here I am in Santa Barbara. I'm going to the beach. Life is great. Everything is the way I want it to be. Unfortunately, it isn't always that way. <laughs> <laughs> and humans, we're, we're, we're patency because aren't we? And so like this has been both 
beneficial for us spotting maybe like risks and um you might you, i think you described it as you can hear sort of like a rustle in the wind and it's like oh is this just the wind or is that maybe a saber-toothed tiger ready to pounce at you like back you know so this is a good thing that we we spot patterns and this has helped us evolutionarily yes yes but absolutely. it's also problematic yeah. isn't it well at least the things like conspiracy thinking <laughs> Uh, you know, where you think, well, there's a pattern. Well, maybe there's an even deeper pattern. You know, the Illuminati, there's 12 guys in London smoking cigars and drinking whiskey and deciding the, the you know, the, the economies of the world and the political organizations of the world. You know, it's, um, it's our, our brains just naturally go to that. And but but as you said, you know, finding patterns is good. Is global warming real or isn't it? You know, are we causing it or not? That's a pattern. And in principle, science should be able to answer that question. You know, did, did the universe, when did the universe begin? Is it expanding forever? Is it going to collapse? That's a pattern. And, you know, we can figure it out. Unfortunately, again, like with the, you know, the default position is just to believe it. The moment you put a pattern together, A is connected to B to C to D, uh, then you, you think, well, must be real. You know, Princess Diana was murdered by the royal family, you know, blah, blah. blah. And, and then, then you start looking for evidence to fit it. They just go through the daily newspaper or whatever. Oh, look, look, look what I just found. You know, there must be some connection. That's patternicity, but that's not that's not good because that, that then uh, our brains are then acting more like lawyers, marshalling evidence in support of your client, in this case your belief, rather than being the devil's advocate and saying, wait a minute, what would it take to falsify my belief? Like, I want this to be true. I think this is true. Now, what would it take for me to change my mind? You know, and that's a much, much harder thing to do. It's, it's hard to even think of examples that don't fit. Um, and this is why we really need to force ourselves to read newspapers or magazines that, and opinions that we don't like. You know, I do this. You know, I, again, I'm kind of libertarian, so I, I can find fault with both liberals and conservatives. But I force myself to listen to people that I don't agree with just so I can think, well, wait a minute, Shermer, maybe, uh, maybe I'm wrong about this. You know, so it forces me to change my mind. Like on gun control, I changed my mind. Death penalty, I changed my mind. I used to be for it, you know, in favor, just supportive of the victims' families. Uh, but then I, you know, just sort of rationally analyzed it by people that are critical of the death penalty, who I normally don't like. I don't agree with them. They're uber liberal, you know, California, you know, blah, blah, blah. And it's like, nope, you know what? I think they're right. And I changed my mind. It's really hard to do that. I'm not saying I did anything special. I'm like everybody else. I'd rather just blindly go on believing what I want to be true. Yeah. And taking a um, bit of a segue, but like taking a sort of uh, a look at, you know, rather than just immediate, but looking at like 100 years, 200 years, we can now got so much like research and data showing that, for example, we know that democracies are better than dictatorships. Do you believe that democracy is sort of the best possible model or do you feel that you know in the, there's better models out there and in the future we'll move towards you know a next one so like for the time being democracy we're happy with it. it's good you know it's, it's, it's better than the one before but like right. are, are there better models do you think we're, we're going to move into other ones or do you think hey we, we've, we've kind of got it down uh, i'd like to see more experiments actually social experiments run uh, on smaller scales, maybe in cities or city states. I, I predict that the future, in the last chapter of the Moral Arc, I, I talked about the possible uh, decline and fall of the nation state as a concept. You know, it's not that old. It's only been around for a few centuries. You know, before the nation state, uh, like Europe was filled with, uh, you know, thousands of small political entities. You know, they weren't democracies, so you know, that's, that's not good. But um, but this, this, these huge nation states have what I fear is too much power. 
and it leads to nationalism and you know tribalism on a bigger scale. I'd rather, and I predict, that, to see the return of the city-state, because most people live in cities now. More than 50% of the world lives in cities. And I think by 2100, it's going to be like three-quarters of the world will live in cities. Cities are where the action is. So it could be that the mayor is going to be the most powerful person, not on earth, but there. You know, fixing, I call it the fixing the potholes problem. You know, I'm not worried about the war in Syria. I'm worried about the pothole out in my street. Uh, you know, and, uh, and maybe there'd be fewer, you know, fewer international wars if there were no nations to fight uh, other nations. Now, I mean, that sounds kind of Peter, Paul, and Mary and California-ish. Uh, but I think if we, if, if we, if we uh, direct the economic power centers at cities rather than nations, that could change how democracies work or how political systems work, and maybe there'd be some experiments. There are some of these Silicon Valley-type visionaries like uh, Peter Thiel, who founded, co-founded uh, PayPal. Yeah. Uh, and he also backs this uh, movement called Seasteady. And no one's actually done this yet, but where you, you just go out to sea and you just plant your flag and you put together a bunch of boats or you know, floating rafts and, and you just expand out several acres and you have a little nation state. Now, of course, there could be pirates come by and steal your stuff. But, you know, so you need protection and pretty soon you're gonna, maybe you're going to end up with another political unit like we have. But the idea was let's just try let's go do that and try that and see what happens. Or maybe, you know, we have a colony on Mars, you know, Elon Musk, let's go to Mars. Let's send a thousand people to Mars. Oh, okay. Uh, you know, and, and so maybe there somebody, they would try a new political system. Okay. Instead of democracy, let's try whatever X, we'll just call it X. I can't think of what it would be. Uh, but maybe, you know, somebody, one of these innovative thinkers that uh, come up with something new, is like, hey, that's even better than democracy. Or maybe it's less worse than democracy, <laughs> know, exactly. which is less worse than the other ones. <laughs> I like that. So almost, yeah, like give it. Yeah, no, I think that, I think that's quite. I think that's quite a fun approach. Almost like the X Prize for a, new, a better sort of society. Yes, yes, I would favor an X Prize like that. <laughs> Although you know, this has been tried, of course, in science fiction and in and, and, and novels where people end up on an island somewhere and without a government, you know, things fall apart. Or I think there was a it was either Simpsons or Family Guy episode where. Uh, they decided oh, it, it was the rise of the Tea Party. So it was like, yes, let's let's cancel the government entirely. We don't need government. Yeah, we don't need government. So they cancel the government. Now all of a sudden, trash is piling up. Uh, you know, over the course of, hey, I, I got this idea. Okay, let's all let's all chip in to a common pool, and then we'll hire somebody to pick up the trash. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, what if somebody doesn't want to chip into the? Well, make them chip into it. It's like, okay, this is sounding a lot like taxes. <laughs> <laughs> In other words, they ended up with the same system they started with that they dismantled. So it could be that that's what would happen. We would end up right back to where we are. But, you know, maybe there'd be long-term improvement. Who knows? What is the hedonic <laughs> treadmill about? The hedonic treadmill, well, this is um, – it's a big thing in California <laughs> uh, where, you know, that, that, that the idea that if I only had this much more stuff, money, cars, whatever, bigger house, uh, I would be that much happier. But – the problem is, is that, and that may be true for you personally, but the moment everyone else is at that level, then it's like, well, I want to be that much higher and then that much higher. So the, the trends keep, the, the standards keep getting raised. So you're like on a treadmill and it doesn't matter how much you get. So really you have to find happiness within. Um, and so the research on this is pretty interesting. You know, do, do, do people that make more money, are they happier? Well, yes, actually, 
you got to have enough money to have three square meals a day, a roof over your head, health care, just, you know, the basics of life. And if you don't have that, you're, you really aren't. It, life is not as good. And then as you scale up, it's like, well, yeah, it'd be nicer if I had a slightly better car. And, and it is nicer. And it'd be and I kind of feel like when I fly business class versus coach. Yeah, I'm a little happier when I get off at the other end of the you know, country or in Europe from L.A., when I've flown in business class, so I, I'm happier, you know. But if I own my own jet, would I be even happier? I don't know, you know, because then you got to maintain the thing, you got to spend all this money to, you know, to keep that lifestyle. So you end up on this treadmill. Maybe it's better to just kind of aim for some of that a little bit, just to improve your life just a little, but find peace and happiness within. So this is my Deepak Chopra moment. You know? <laughs> Okay, I'm going to go meditate. I'm going to sit on the beach and meditate. It doesn't matter how much stuff I have or don't have. I'm just going to be happy within. Okay. So, you know, maybe there's some blend there. You know, and I know Deepak Chopra. He's a good friend. And believe me, he's a totally spiritual guy, but he's also a very, very materially happy guy, too. <laughs> he has a very good life, uh, both spiritually and materialistically. And, and so I look at that and go, yeah, okay, maybe it's all right to have both. <laughs> <laughs> what does a fulfilled life mean to you? Well, ultimately, to me, first, obviously, your own physical health, that you're not feeling miserable every day. Um, but then beyond that, beyond yourself, you know, family and friends, having some kind of social circle community of people that you like hanging out with. In my case, I have um, my cycling friends, my science friends, um, and just, you know, family. Uh, love, you know, we talked about love, you know, getting that hit of oxytocin and dopamine, you know. Uh, okay, I like that. But everybody likes that. And I think it's good to have a partner or somebody you love and, and are connected to. It doesn't have to be marriage or what I'm not gonna get into all the you know trans blah blah but this and it just just having somebody you care for, you know, having kids, whatever, family, whatever works for you, you know, that's it. And then and then beyond that, so here, you know, the kind of the spiritual thing is, you know, having something beyond even that, you know, whether it's working for a a nonprofit, an NGO, a, you know, a political movement, a cause, something that's beyond you. So here I, I even think science can contribute to this in the sense that if you're working on this grand problem, like maybe an astrophysicist wants to understand the origins of the universe. Wow. You know, I mean, that is big. That's huge. And uh, and so and for me, like when I go to uh, telescopes, I go to I like to visit um, uh, observatories around the world and go inside the dome and look up. And it's a lot like going inside Shark Cathedral or the Dome in Cologne uh, or St. Paul's Cathedral. You know, it, it really is inspirational. It's it is kind of awesome, you know, in, in terms of awe inspiring, which is why I, I want to take that word away, spiritualism, from religion, because they've had a monopoly on it. Everybody can be spiritual. It's my friend Deepak Chopra. He's always telling me, you can be spiritual, Michael. You can be spiritual. <laughs> But I'm an atheist. It's okay. You can be an atheist and be spiritual. Okay. Uh, you know, and so, but we all can do that in our own way. So for me, going to an observatory, thinking about science or, or just trying to make the world a better place, like my book, The Moral Arc. I, but for me, it was kind of a spirit, taking myself, uh, me out of myself and just looking at the world as a whole, the last 500 years. You know, that, that's anything that takes you out of yourself. And so people that have beyond meaningful work, it's good to have a reason to get up in the morning and get out the door and go do something. But, but even beyond that, just to make money, uh, is to do something that helps other people, makes the world a slightly better place. So I call that protopia. It's not my word. It's uh, Kevin Kelly, the founder of Wired Magazine. He coined this word. So forget utopia. We're never going to get there. 
and don't go for dystopia because you know just things could fall apart utopia protopia just make the world slightly better today than it was yesterday slightly better tomorrow than it was today just do something even just saying hi to somebody just be nice give a nice extra tip at the restaurant something anything you know, volunteer, give, you know, make your end of the year donation up too late, the third of January. But anyway, but, you know, helping a cause, you know, helping poor people, anything like that. Anything that takes you out of yourself seems to do the trick to make you feel a deeper, more spiritual person and therefore a more fulfilled person. I love that. Protopia. I'm going to ch- I'm going to ch- I'm going to learn read more about that. I love that. I cover, I kind of agree with that philosophy. Like it's it's it brings it to home. Like we can you can do that. That's small, actionable things that we can all start doing today. And actually, that might that kind of maybe the answer to your, the next question. I was going to say, what is one thing our listeners can start doing today that will have an impact, a good impact on their lives? And yeah, well, well you know, it's like the, the, and I like the idea of protopia too because it's small steps. Because yeah. when I look at people like Bill Gates, you know, he's saving Africa. Oh my God, I, I'm what am I doing? Nothing. You know, it makes me feel, you know, useless. But it's, okay, don't worry, don't don't look at Bill, don't compare yourself to Bill Gates and the Gates Foundation. Just, you know, just log on to like Peter Singer's site, the, the Life You Can Save, and he's got on there, you know, like a dozen different charities. Like this one buys mosquito nets for families in Africa so they don't get malaria. Okay, just give them five bucks. That that helps really. Fifty bucks, whatever you can give, you know, just a little bit. You don't have to be Bill Gates, you know, just just a tiny little bit. And that's the sort of thing you can do. Or, you know, if you don't want to give chari- charity or whatever, just be nice to people. Just try to say something nice to somebody. <clears throat> try to think of one positive thought for today. Uh, you know, while you're watching the news, getting depressed, <laughs> excuse me, <clears throat> just, rem- just, just remember, who is that, that guy, that Shermer guy? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said things are getting better. Maybe I'll just think about that for a minute or look up something that's positive. You know, I don't know. You know, I'm not a big I'm not a big guru kind of guy. I'm not a Tony Robbins. You know, I'm like, uh, go out there and, you know, make, you know, change. your. I'm not one of those kind of guys. Uh, but really, we can all make a difference. And, and we do. We, we really can make a difference. Hard to see. But cumulatively, all of us together are kind of pushing the arc of the moral universe towards, you know, truth, justice and freedom. Last but not least, how can people find out more? I love that. I needed that needed no no more words after it. <laughs> how can people find out more about you and your work? Where can we send them? Oh uh, well, skeptic dot com is the webpage for my magazine, um, and michaelshermer dot com has you know my personal articles and all that sort of stuff. And you know you could go to uh, Wikipedia or Amazon or whatever to find my uh, writings and whatnot. So that's it. Skeptic dot com really is the best place to go. Michael, thank you so much for for chatting with me today. I really enjoyed it. Likewise, cheers and. And uh, go out and be protopian. I'm, ge- I'm going to. That's 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 my that's my. This is perfect. This is going to be our first um, first interview of the new years of January. Yes. So New Year's resolutions, everyone, be protopian. Be a <laughs> good year. 2017 is going to be our year. <laughs>